0: Well, over the last couple of months since we've begun um, in uh, Revelation, we've looked at seven letters to seven uh, churches. Jesus dictated seven real letters to seven real churches. And in today's uh, method of communicating, each one would be maybe the size of an email. So it's like seven emails to, to seven churches. They're not big, long, long, long letters like, say, um, the book of Romans, say. Uh, each one is, uh, is short, but um, uh, each one is important. Now, each church mentioned here was located in a different city, uh, and each church had been in existence for, give or take, 35 years before Jesus sent them this letter through the Apostle John. So they'd been around. In those 35 years, a number of people had been saved. A number of people had grown older and passed away. And some of them would have died natural causes. Some would have been martyred and put to death. But um, bottom line is that the, the, the crowd of churchgoers filling the pews of these seven churches now Are not necessarily all the same crowd that was around in the first days the church, each church was started. You understand that as time goes on, sometimes people move away, sometimes they pass away, Uh, sometimes they backslide away. That happens very, um, very much that happens. Now, all of these seven churches were different, every one of them, they were different. And each church uh, had its own personality, but also each church had its own pastor. And I think that that's good to know. Now, as we went through these uh, churches, one thing that we found a a common denominator in them was good works. Now, a church is nothing more than a bunch of uh, saved uh, people, baptized and united together Uh, For the purpose of doctrine and fellowship and evangelism and worship of God. And where uh, Jesus is the head and the Bible is the instruction book. They have regular services and ministries. And this we call a church. Um, It's important that we see this. That uh, churches have and maintain good works. That means that the Christians within the churches must. Maintain good works. Every believer in a church must be involved somehow with good works. It's not enough to let others do it. They say that in the average church, something like um, 80 to 90 percent of the work being done in the average church is done by 10 to 20 percent of the people. Now, that is certainly not true of every church. And um, I'm sure that the pendulum swings both ways, but uh, studies have been done and that's the figures they come up with. I don't know where we would fit in there. I I think we're doing better than 10 or 20% of our people doing the work. I think we've got a lot of people involved and that's good. And the more, the merrier Uh, all of God's people need to be involved in serving the Lord and doing good works. Now, It seems that Jesus, in addressing these seven churches, this is one of the first things that he went for. One of the first things that he addressed was the works end of it. And uh, he commented to each of these churches about their works. And so it's very important for us that we use these seven letters and turn them into seven lessons for the Christian life. These letters are by no means dead letters. It's not really like someone else's mail and someone else's concern. Because if you look at it with me, please, um, in chapter 2, we'll go to, um, uh, let's see here, verse 7. And this is at the tail end of the first letter written to the church at Ephesus. And the Lord writes, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Plural. Every one of these seven churches were going to read each other's mail. And the admonition for every church and every Christian within the church was to have ears to hear. Take note, listen, focus in. See what Christ is saying. You know, the Bible tells us that... uh, 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 we need to have good doctrine. And something else the Bible tells us is that doctrine must be endured. Doctrine um, is uh, uh, teaching. It's biblical teaching. But it's setting standards as well, God's standards. And sometimes we have to pay very close attention. There are certain doctrines in the Bible that are, that are very easy. Uh, the way to be saved is a simple doctrine. It's a very simple doctrine. Um, The doctrines of uh, sanctification are a little more complex and require a little more of our thought and our attention. And that's why in the Bible we're told to compare scripture with scripture and we're told to study, to show ourselves approved. The Bible speaks of both milk and meat and to the, the infant believer, the baby believer, the new believer, they would they would be taken up with the milk. That's their level. That's about what they can handle. But they're expected to grow and develop and meat The meat of the word belongs to those that are of uh, uh, full age and by use have had their their senses exercised. They're mature believers and they can handle the meat. Um, The new believers can't handle the meat they can handle the milk. But hopefully, with some prayer and uh, regular church attendance and fellowship and getting involved, they'll grow. The Apostle John, the same John who wrote um, for the Lord Jesus this book of Revelation, spoke of, uh, in 1 John, there being um, uh, classifications of of, uh, Christians or Christian growth. And he spoke of the... uh, uh, the children, he spoke of the young men, he spoke of the old men, and, and that idea in context, he was talking spiritually, not physically. And he was talking about those that are new believers, and those that are uh, sort of, uh, they've, they've come of age and they're strong believers, and then there are those that have been believers a long time, many, many years, and they've got years of wisdom and experience. And so he uses the analogy of children, young men, and, um, and fathers. And so we get that idea. And I think we understand that, don't we? Even Peter said, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that he may grow thereby. And so here the seven churches were each given a letter, but they were given permission to read the contents of the other six letters. Why? So that they would take it in and learn. And so what we want to do tonight is we just kind of want to pull a bus over a bit. And we want to ask this question, have we learned anything yet? We've gone over to Asia Minor, we've visited seven churches, if you will. It's as if we've gone to the spiritual post office and we've sat down and we've read seven letters to these seven churches. And the question now is, what have we learned? It's like we've sat under the master teacher, Jesus. For seven lessons, seven Bible lessons, spiritual lessons. Now comes the pop quiz. What have we learned? You know, it's very important that we be learners. Very important that we be learners so that we can be doers of the word. We want to be learners of the word so we can be doers of the word. These seven letters, I believe, have um, uh, a lot of practical Uh, application to us now um, someone once said that learning from the successes and the mistakes of others is the fastest and cheapest form of education we'll ever have others have put in the years others have experienced the, the successes others have experienced the disasters and if we'll be patient and sit down with them and ask, please, could you share with me some of your experience? Boy, we're going to get some good advice. They say a mistake that we do not learn from is a mistake that we will repeat. There's no question in my mind that these seven letters contain important spiritual truths that every one of us here tonight are in need of. And if we miss them, we will make the mistake or mistakes that the uh, churches made in Asia Minor. I, I don't know if I could conclusively say that every mistake that we've ever made is somehow mentioned here in these seven letters. I'm not sure I would go that far, but I will definitely say that there are some whoppers that christians make some terrible mistakes christians make in the christian life needlessly if they had learned from the mistakes of others they would have known what to do to avoid making the same mistake themselves and so once again we ask this question have we learned anything yet well first let's take a look at these seven churches once again The first one is in chapter 2 and verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. And that name Ephesus has that idea of desirable. And it was a desirable city, Ephesus. We come to verse 8, and we find the second letter, unto the angel of the church of Smyrna. And Smyrna means bitter. And it spoke of their suffering. They had a lot of bitter experiences. But this was the, uh, the second letter, bitter. First desirable, then bitter. The third one is in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Pergamos speaks of a mixed marriage. There's actually other technical terms, uh, but it boils down to the idea of a mixed marriage. And from this letter, we could tell that the church was starting to mix itself with the world. It wasn't fully mixed. It wasn't head over heels all bound up in it, but it was starting to get involved. And that's the beginning of sorrows. And so we come to the fourth uh, church, and it's in verse 18, unto the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thyatira is the odor of affliction. The odor of affliction. And um, we'll, we'll comment on that in um in a few moments we come to the fifth church and we find ourselves in chapter three verse one under the angel of the church in sardis sardis refers to the escaping ones the ones who who try to uh to get out of there to escape we come to the church of philadelphia in verse seven and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. That's a nice one, isn't it? And then, finally, the last church is in verse 14 of chapter 3, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. So it's the church in the city of Laodicea. And that word refers to the people's rights, the rights of the people or the people's way or the mind of the people, that concept, that idea. And so these are the seven churches in the seven cities that the Lord Jesus addressed. Next, we want to ask how the Lord Jesus revealed himself to each of these seven churches. If you went through the writings of Paul, you'd see that he would reveal himself as Paul, the servant of the Lord, the apostle, that sort of thing. Here the Lord Jesus in each letter. Revealed himself a different way. Now that's interesting. Every church is not like a cookie cutter. All churches are not the same. Did we get that? Churches are different. Even churches that hold the same doctrinal beliefs. Are still different. Because they have personality. And they're different that way. But. The differences amongst churches, quote unquote, is far beyond just doctrine. To say that uh, all churches are the same is a gross, gross misunderstanding of the truth. It's like saying that all Canadians are the same, all human beings are the same. It's a gross misunderstanding. Because our fingerprints are different. You can go all over the world and, and measure or examine the fingerprints of seven and a half billion people and you'll find them all different. Our DNA is different. Our personalities are different. We're just different. Listen, even they say that everyone's got a twin somewhere. And uh, there's another, they used to just call them twins. Now they got a fancy word, doppelers they got their Doppler someplace. And uh, there's been some hilarious uh, confrontations getting two people together from different parts of the world that look exactly the same. and as soon as, But as soon as they open their mouth, they're different. They speak with a different accent. They speak with different intonation. The pitch of their voice is different. And then, of course, the, as they speak, they reveal their mind and their heart, and that's all different. Truth is, we're all different. And churches are different. And the Lord Jesus revealed himself in a different way to each of these seven different churches. And so how did he reveal himself? Let's go back to chapter 2. And we find here in beginning verse 1 here. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And so the Lord Jesus has got the seven stars. That speaks of the pastors. We know that, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And he's walking amongst the candlesticks. That's a reference to the churches. And so it seems as if Jesus is saying that he is present in all the church services. Now this is very interesting, as we'll see. There's no mistake. The Lord didn't refer to himself this way just out of the blue or for no reason at all. The Lord used these words, these adjectives, these descriptions of himself to relate to that particular church, as we'll soon see. The next, the church in Smyrna, in verse 8, these things saith, uh, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And so the Lord Jesus now, in this second letter, reveals himself a totally different way to the second church than he did to the first church. In the first church, he revealed himself as if he is present, omnipresent in all of the church services. And you'll remember his own words, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. We gather together as a church, and the Lord Jesus is here. And yet, how many times do we forget that? How many times do we think, well, it's just kind of a social gathering of the saints. We sing a few hymns. We hear a little preaching, we take an offering, maybe a special song or something. We shake hands, we have a cup of tea and a cookie, and it's hasta la vista, we'll see you next time. And sometimes we forget that he is here. It's his house. The Lord is in his house. That's good to know. And so here in Smyrna, he reveals himself not as the one who's present in all of the church services, but when he says he is the first and the last that was dead and is alive, and we know who he's talking to, this church at Smyrna with their, their, their bitter experiences, it's like Jesus is saying, I know what it's like to be martyred. I know what it's like to be persecuted. I know all about it. I know what it's like to be hated and spat upon, to be downtrodden. I know what it's like to be tempted in all points. Here the Lord Jesus is referring to himself in a different fashion to the second church, isn't he? We'll learn a little bit more very soon. We move on to the third church in Pergamos in verse 12. Look what he says. These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now he never said that to the church at Ephesus, did he? He never introduced himself uh, as, as the, the one with the sharp sword, two-edged sword to the church at Smyrna, did he? But he yet he did uh, to the church at Pergamos. Isn't that interesting? The sharp sword, it's, it's as if the Lord Jesus is standing there ready with a sharp two-edged sword to cut away anything that doesn't belong in his church. And look who he wrote to. The church at Pergamos. And what did Pergamos, what's the meaning of the word? You tell me. Mixed marriage. Very appropriate, wouldn't you say? That the Lord Jesus would refer to himself as the one with his sharp two-edged sword. And you know that it tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And it goes on to say how sharp it is. It can even divide Between the soul and the spirit. That's how sharp the word of God is. Nothing else is as sharp as the word of God. We could do a a little miniature study on what it means. What What is this sharpness and what does it mean? And how is it that you attain a fine, fine edge on a piece of metal? We don't have the time for that. But I'll tell you, anything that man can do even right down to the micron. I mean, they're splitting the atom. The Word of God is even sharper than that. And here is the Lord standing ready with a two-edged sword, ready to cut away anything that doesn't belong. We move on to the fourth church in verse 18. Thyatira, These things saith the Son of God, who hath His eyes like unto a flame of fire, and His feet, are like fine brass. Now there's another totally different description of the Lord Jesus. You see, if these seven churches never read each other's letter, and one day they had a little conference and they all got together, and and one of them stood up and said, let me tell you what the Lord is like. The Lord is, is the one with the seven stars in His hand, and He walks amongst the seven candlesticks. And then the next church might stand up and say, Ah, my brother, you're wrong. You're wrong, you see. Because we know that Jesus is not like that. We know that Jesus is more like the first than the last, who was dead and is alive. The third church at Pergamos might stand up and say, Gentlemen, love you in the Lord, but you're both wrong. They say, how's that? We got a letter from Jesus and he told us about himself. You see where this is going? Each one has a different description of Jesus. Which one is right? They're all right. The story of the the four blind men. Blind since birth. They all went to the circus. They heard about the mighty elephant. They wanted to find out what an elephant was like. And so they, they all got around the elephant, and one held the, the elephant by the trunk and said, My friends, I now know what an elephant is like. It's this long, bumpy thing. It's like a worm, only it's much bigger. The other blind man to speak was standing at the rear end holding the tail. Saying, you're wrong. It's slender. It's not all that long. And it's very skinny. Now you see where this is going. Which one of the blind men were right? They were all right. They all had a different piece of the elephant. And what we have here, ladies and gentlemen, is we have seven letters, each with a, a different piece of Jesus, if you will. And the Lord Jesus revealed himself in these specific ways for these specific reasons that we're going to get to. And so here. Before we leave Thyatira. The Lord describes himself as the son of God. Having flaming eyes. And feet of fine brass. The flaming eyes is that idea of being able to see right through. Eyes that can pierce right through to the heart of the matter. And the feet of fine brass. Fine brass would have gone, gone through the refining fires. and Has that... Uh, Firm standing. It's like he's the judge. It's as if the Lord Jesus were a judge. Now we come to chapter 3. To the church at Sardis. In verse 1. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars. Now the seven spirits is a reference. um, We'll be seeing this later. As a reference to the Holy Spirit. The seven stars, of course, we've already learned that one. That's the pastors. And it's the idea of omniscience. Omniscience. Here the Lord Jesus knows everything there is to know. You cannot hide anything from him. Why would Jesus introduce himself as the omniscient one? We'll see in just a minute. Now we come in chapter 3 to verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. And you might say, hey, wait a minute. Where's the flaming eyes? Where's the, uh, the sword, the two-edged sword? Where's the, the dead and now is alive? Where's all that stuff? Not needed. This church needed a different approach, a different letter. This church needed something different that the the other churches, the other five churches didn't need, this one needed. And so here, the Lord is revealing himself as holy and true and has the key of David. He can open doors and close doors, almost like a rewarder, if you will. A rewarder. He can do things. He can answer prayer and open mighty doors. And now we come to the last church, which is the church at Laodicea in verse number 14. It says, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That means the one who did all the opening up. It doesn't mean that Jesus is a created being, far from it. Jesus is the creator. And here is the, the very essence of it. Jesus is referring referring to himself as the creator. The creator. A creator has a creation. If there's no creation, there's no creator. If a man never creates anything, how can he ever call himself a creator? But God created all that there is. He is the creator. The Lord Jesus is referring to himself as the creator. Now... What does the Lord have to say to these churches? Well, let's look at it. In chapter 2, right away, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. I know thy works. Right away. You see, as I said earlier, he's looking for those works. The Lord is looking for works out of a church and believe it, Christian, he's looking for works out of a Christian. When you Stand before Jesus. He's going to be looking for your works. Not to determine your salvation. Not that. That's already been determined. If you've received him as Savior, he's in your heart. Never to leave you nor forsake you. But what he will be looking for is your works. The Bible says very clearly, we've been saved unto good works. The Bible says that it's important that we maintain good works. Don't start them and then quit. Don't be on again and off again. But you maintain them. Get into a ministry. Stay there. Take on another ministry if you possibly can. Keep both going. If you can do a third, do it. Without getting burned out, do it if you can. If God has given you the the time and the resources to be able to do three ministries, do them. If you can possibly do four ministries, then by all means, do them. You will be rewarded. Our payday is coming, folks. Here on earth, we, we forget that there's a great, grand, and glorious ticker tape parade and paycheck coming for Christians who will serve the Lord. Now, the Lord is looking for what he can reward. And he's looking for faithful, loving service. The first thing that Jesus looks at in every one of these churches has to do with their works. Now, we're a local church, Grace Baptist Church here in Surrey, British Columbia, Canada. We're a a local church. We've got some good works. Could we be doing more good works? Well, that depends. Can our people do more good works? Are all of the people at Grace Baptist Church maxed out? There is such a, a limit Of getting maxed out. You don't want to go beyond the max. At least not for any length of time. You want to do a reasonable amount. We need a balance in life. And most Christians have some kind of job. That they work at. Outside or inside the home. Or school or something. But then they're left with free time. And it's in that free time. That they're able to do good works. And so. What does the Lord have to say? Well, in Ephesus, he commends their works and he talks all about the labor. In fact, there are 10 items he goes through works, labor, patience. Uh, Thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they're apostles, found them liars. Thou hast borne and hast patience. Man, they must have had a lot of patience. It's mentioned twice. And for my name's sake, has labored. Got a lot of labor there. It's mentioned twice. And has not fainted. That's great. So he's commending them. For all of their wonderful works. But. There's a rebuke. And you know it. It's in verse 4. Nevertheless. I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left. Thy first love. And this was the main problem with Ephesus. Is that they got so technically correct. All of their doctrines were right. They dressed right. They sang right. Huh? The walls were painted right. Everything was right. Except they'd left Jesus behind. They'd gotten so busy serving the Lord that they forgot who they were in love with. They left their first love. Can that happen to a Christian today? Who oh, you want to believe it can. It can happen to Christians in full-time ministry, serving God out in the mission field or in churches behind the pulpit. And it can happen to, to Christians sitting in the pew. It can happen to any one of us. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he what? Fall. fall. Any one of us can fall away, can leave our first love. It happens. It happens. Do you remember when you were first saved? Do you remember that? Can you remember when you were saved? you remember any of the joy Or do you remember a a time of revival when God really got a hold of your heart and you just wept with joy? So happy you were saved. Two questions. uh, Sorry, two words. One question. Two words. What happened? What happened? Well, this is the case here at Ephesus. They were commended for their works, but they had a rebuke. And that was they left their first love. We move on quickly to Smyrna. And Smyrna, in verse number 8, right away, verse 9, I know thy works. And so, again, they get commended here for their works and tribulation and poverty. That then he says in brackets, but thou art rich. So there's other ways of being rich than just in dollars and cents. Don't ever think that because you don't have much money that you're poor. You can have a lot of faith. You can be far, far wealthier in faith and in spiritual riches and treasures than many, many, many people that are very wealthy in worldly possessions. Well, wait a minute. We go through this letter here, and where's the rebuke? Where is it? He rebuked the church at Ephesus. Where's the rebuke here in the church of Smyrna? That's the interesting thing. There is no rebuke. Isn't that interesting? These dear Christians here, they were suffering. It says, um, verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. I will give thee a crown of life. There's no rebuke. He doesn't rebuke them for anything. The Lord Jesus, who was present in every one of those church services at Smyrna, Every time those Christians got together and they stood up and said, open up your hymn book to number 110. Let's all stand and sing the great hymns. God was there. Jesus was walking in and amongst all of the pews and the seats and the Christians there, the church of Smyrna. Now, maybe they didn't have a hymn book with the number 110 in it. All right. You, but you get the idea. The Lord Jesus was there in every single one of those church services at Smyrna. Walking in and out, up and down. Why? Because Jesus is in his house. The Lord is in the church. Isn't that good to know? Amen? Yeah. That's good to know. If God wasn't here, please tell me where he is because I want to be with him. If he's not here, if he's over there, I'll leave here. I'll go over there. Wherever he is, that's where I want to be. But he's in his house. He's promised to be in his house. So many times we've experienced the Lord speaking to our hearts right here at church, haven't we? Isn't that right? We sure have. God is, in his, God is in his house. And so, he commends them on their works and their faithfulness, and there's no rebuke. Now, we'll come back to this. We move on to the next church at Pergamos. And at Pergamos here in verse number 12, he, he described himself as having the sword... Verse 13, right away, I know thy works. And he goes into this, but there's a rebuke. And look at the rebuke here in verse 14. I have a few things against thee. Oh, more than just one. I have a few things because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Wow, that's bad so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now we've already taken the time to study those doctrines. They're bad doctrines. And they're perpetrated by either bad teachers or false teachers or deluded teachers. But they're bad doctrines. Here's a church that was commended for their works, but they were rebuked for some of their doctrines. If a church has bad doctrine, the Lord doesn't like that. He stands there with a sharp sword. Bad doctrine needs to be eliminated. It needs to be cut out of there. You have to get rid of bad doctrine. Well, pastor, who is to say what is good doctrine and what is bad doctrine? One church holds a certain doctrine and another church doesn't. So which one is right? Folks, that's where we... We take a literal, grammatical, historical, normal, common sense understanding of the scriptures. We don't try and read things into the scriptures. We let the scriptures speak for themselves. Now, there are some areas open for discussion in the Bible. For example, what is the the Antichrist mark? 666, what does that mean? Well, we're still debating that after 2,000 years But praise God, it's not a doctrine. You get the point? You talk about the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the virgin birth, the doctrine of his his vicarious atonement on the cross, the doctrine of what the church is, and these are important doctrines. The Lord doesn't like impure doctrine, not at all. No more than you would like your children at school being taught errors. And that's what's happening in many schools. The children are taught that we evolved from monkeys. That's what they're being taught. And as a parent, you know that's wrong. You know it's false teaching. And it makes you mad. Makes me mad too. I wish the Lord had enabled us the ability to open our own Christian school. the only way we would teach anything about the the monkeys is if we teach about zoology. We would teach also what the, uh, 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 the evolutionists are saying, but we would show from science even and from scripture that they're wrong. The Lord Jesus hates bad doctrine. Got to get rid of it. I'll tell you a bad doctrine that Jesus hates. So when a Christian says, Oh, I can't do anything for the Lord. That's bad doctrine. You may as well go go to the church of Pergamos and and sit in a pew. Oh, I can't do anything for Jesus. There's nothing I can do. The devil put that doctrine in your head. That is bad doctrine. Take the sword of the word of God and cut that right out of there. We need to move on here. We're not going to get through these seven letters here. We come to Thyatira now, verse Uh, Number 18, verse 19, look look what Jesus says. I know thy, what's the next word? Works. I know thy works and charity. And he rattles off six wonderful things here. Verse 20, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. And so he commends their works. But he rebukes them because they have a false prophetess in their church. And Jesus calls her Jezebel. What a name! Carl, Cassie, if you ever have a daughter, never call her Jezebel. Promise me that. All right. <laughs> who, who in their right mind would want to name their daughter Jezebel? Can you imagine the stigma of that Jezebel? Ooh. There's a couple of names you want to stay away from, and that sure is one of them. The Lord Jesus referred to this woman in the church, whoever she was. Maybe that was her real name, maybe. Poor her. But she was a a false teacher is what she was. Because she was seducing the Lord's servants. She was doing bad stuff. Look at it in verse 20. To teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication. Bad, bad and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Double bad. This is not good. This is going on inside a church. It's going on. The Lord Jesus commended their works, but rebuked them, because they had this lady in there. You know, if they were smart, they'd run over to the church at Pergamos and get that big sword that Jesus talked about and bring it back and get rid of this false teacher out of their church chapter 3 verse 1 we've got sardis um, the church of sardis and right away uh, in verse 1 he says i know thy works so again the lord jesus is commending them but he rebukes them because he says at the end basically you're dead you have a name that says that you live but you're dead. Hast the name that thou livest and art dead. There's the rebuke. We come down a few verses to verse 7. We come to the church in Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. And he commends their works. And um, boy, he talks about some great things in this church. But as you work your way through these verses, you say, wait a minute, where's the rebuke? There is no rebuke. There are two churches out of all seven that get, seem to get 100% on their report card. One is the church at Smyrna. The other is the church at Philadelphia. Both churches seem to get 100% on the report card. I wonder if that made the other five churches a little bit jealous. Knowing human nature, it might have. But there's no rebuke here at all. We get to the last church. This is the church at Uh, Of the Laodiceans. In verse 14. Verse 15. Look at Jesus words. I know thy works. But. He's not commending them. He goes right on to say. That they're lukewarm works. He says thou art. Neither cold nor hot. The works that these people did. They weren't hot. They weren't cold. He said I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm. And neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He rebukes their lukewarm works and he rebukes them largely because they seem to think they have no need. They're rich and increased with goods and they got need of nothing. So I suggest to you ladies and gentlemen, it's very important that every Christian maintain good works. The title of this simple message is, Have We Learned Anything Yet? We've been at these letters for months. What have we learned? I think one of the first lessons that we should all learn is maintain good works. If you're on the bandwagon, stay on the bandwagon. Keep serving the Lord. Keep maintaining good works. If you've fallen off the bandwagon, get back on the bandwagon. A-S-A-P. That's important because this life will soon be over. Have you noticed how quickly this year went by? Two weeks is all we got left. Unless Jesus comes, two weeks is all we have left. That's it. Two weeks. And the year is dead. It's over. It's done. No longer can we say, well, look at all the time I got left. I'll get this done tomorrow mañana, another day. I I won't bother with it today. I'll get to it tomorrow. Oh, I, I know that I should be reading my Bible. I'll get to it tomorrow. I should be spending time with the Lord in prayer, but I'm too busy right now. I'll get to it tomorrow. I should be more faithful in these areas, but I just have to clear up a few things. And then, what a mistake. The devil uses that trick on all of us. All of us, folks. Let's not be fooled by that one. Two weeks, it's all over. Kaput, she's done. It's important that we maintain good works. Now, it's important that we take to heart each of these messages if we want to please Jesus Christ. If that's the desire of your heart, and I think it is, otherwise you wouldn't be here tonight unless someone is holding your mother-in-law ransom in a warehouse outside of town and forcing you to come to church tonight. You're probably here because you want to be here, and that's the reason to be here. I'm glad you are. But if you and I want to please Jesus, we've got to maintain good works. Even when the devil opposes us, we must maintain good works. We need to maintain good works when it's convenient, and we need to maintain good works when it's not convenient. We need to maintain good works when the sun is shining and when it's not shining. When it's raining and not raining, when it's hot or cold or anything in between, we need to maintain good works. Now, we just have a little time left. Here's something I want to suggest to you. There are seven letters to seven churches, and there happens to be seven days in a week. The church at Ephesus. City of Ephesus was desirable. Desirable. Well, I'll tell you something more desirable. And that's to be with Jesus in church on Sunday. The first day of our week. Start your week right with the Lord Jesus. Spend that day with the Lord Jesus. He is more desirable. He is your pearl of great price. He is the lover of your soul. There is no one that loves you more than Jesus. And there is no one who can do more for you than Jesus. He is far more desirable than anything the devil can ever offer you. The second, Smyrna, the martyred ones. And of course, the Lord presented himself as alive forevermore. Did you know it's okay to suffer? It's okay to suffer. Maybe you're going through some suffering. That's okay. Now listen, if you've brought it upon yourself, maybe it's not so much okay. Maybe you need to go to the Lord and say, what do I need to do to fix this, Lord? But you know something, that God builds character. He builds Christians through suffering. What is it that makes a real strong army, a real powerful army? Is it the mass hall and the canteen? Is it the dance floor on Friday nights? Is it the parade square where they get to hold their, their toy guns and march around? To the beat of a drum? Is that what makes good, powerful soldiers? No. It's the battlefield. That's what makes good soldiers. And there's a time when you and I need to go out on the battlefield and we need to do a little suffering for Christ. The good news is that Jesus is alive forevermore. He's been there. He knows that there's an end to it. A happy end. The church of Pergamos that can be your Smyrna can be your Monday. How about that? Some of you it feels that way, doesn't it? Oh, Monday. I ought to go back to school. I go back to work. Oh Monday. Why does it have to be Monday? Oh, someone please fill me with coffee. Oh, that may be that's your Smyrna. You poor thing. Well Jesus has been there. That's good to know. Now come Tuesday is your Pergamos and you're tempted by Tuesday to get mixed in with the world. Well, I'll tell you that Jesus is separate and pure. And you and I need to stay separate and pure on Tuesday when the world is coming at us and bombarding us and tempting us. And Thyatira was totally entrenched with the world and Jesus presented himself as the judge with fiery eyes as the judge. Boy, come Wednesday. Well, you need to be in church on Wednesday. Right? Unless you're dead or sick or you're at work or you're out of the country or in a coma or something, but you need to be in church. Come your, your Thursday, you've got the church of Sardis. That was the, the dead church or the dead-like church. The good news is that Jesus is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He can fix any problem. Whatever your problem, he is able to fix Philadelphia was the sixth church, and for us that will represent Friday. That's the church of brotherly love, and Jesus represented himself as the rewarder of loving faithfulness. You get through till Friday without having dipped your colors, without having bowed to the world, you'll be rewarded. We come to Saturday, there's Laodicea and the people's rights. Well, we'll soon learn in the Christian life, We have no rights. We're owned by Jesus. He is the master. He is the creator and the owner. But, and we're going to finish on this. Despite five of the seven churches getting rebuked, Jesus does something amazing. And he goes on to make all of the churches, each one of them a great promise. Each one gets a great promise. If you look at chapter 2, and verse 7, near the end there, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Boy, that sounds good. I like the sound of that. That's something more desirable than Ephesus. In Smyrna, we get to verse 11. He, it says, he that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. Remember, these dear people, many of them, suffered and were tortured and many of them were martyred well this sounds good not hurt by the second death that's good look at verse 17 to him that overcometh will i give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth save saving he that receiveth it well that sounds very good that's a that's a a precious gift from god And we get to verse 26 and 27 in Thyatira. uh, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Well, that sounds good too. We're not going to be the the tail anymore. We're going to be the head. And we come to chapter 3 and verse 5, this church of Sardis. He says... um, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I shall not blot his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Well there's a lot of good teaching in there. Did you know you've got some angels? According to this you got got angels. You got at least one. And the Lord Jesus will confess your name before the father. He'll stand before the father and say father I just want you to know and he'll name you. Has been faithful and has kept the good works and has served me. That sounds wonderful. And then verse 12. Uh, this is the church of Philadelphia. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of, of uh, the city of my God which is the new Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God and I will write upon him my new name. Again, it's a wonderful promise to a faithful church. And look, even this last church, the church of the Laodiceans. This is the lousy church. Woo, if ever there was one. But look at verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Marvelous, wonderful promises that the Lord makes. Folks, God makes to you and to I similar, wonderful Magnificent promises. Our service for him on this earth will be so greatly rewarded. We'll get to heaven and he'll reward us. And we'll say, Lord, what is this? This is so huge. This can't be for anything I've done. And the Lord will nod and smile and say, yes, this is for you, my child. Because I love you. That's why it's important. That every Christian. Maintain good works. And if we're going to please Jesus. If we're going to be serious. In this business. Of pleasing our creator. Our Jesus. Well, we're going to want to learn. These seven lessons. To seven churches. All the churches. Were to learn from each other. We all need these seven letters. To get a good idea. How we ought to live our lives for Jesus.